1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today is one of our postscript podcasts in which we invite authors to react to contemporary political events that engage their scholarship. Since the Supreme Court's wrapping up their term, we'll talk about the power of the Federalist Society in shaping the current conservative majority, how race, ethnicity, and gender issues have affected the construction of the Supreme Court over time and the closing days of this year's term. I'm thrilled to have four fabulous scholars of the Supreme Court. Dr. Christine C. Byrd is an assistant professor of political science at Oklahoma State University and the director of the Byrd Law and Public Policy Lab. Her research examines elite interests' influence on public policy making in the judicial system. Dr. Zachary McGee is an assistant professor of political science at Kenyon College, focusing on American political institutions with an emphasis on Congress, political parties, interest groups, and the policy process. Christine and Zach recently co-wrote Looking Forward, Interest Group, Legal Strategy, and Federalist Society Affiliation in the United States Circuit Courts of Appeals for Polity Symposium on the Supreme Court, as well as Going Nuclear, Federalist Society-Affiliated Judicial Nominees' Prospects and a New Era of Confirmation Politics for American Politics Research. Dr. Paul Collins is Professor of Legal Studies and Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. His research focuses on understanding bias and inequality in the legal system, the selection and work of judges, and social movement litigation. Dr. Lori A. Ringhand is the J. Alton Hosh Professor of Law at the University of Georgia College of Law. Her work on the confirmation process has been cited in major national and international media outlets, as well as academic scholarship. Paul and Lori previously published Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change with Cambridge University Press, and they also contributed an article to the Polity Symposium entitled Constructing the Supreme Court How Race, Ethnicity, and Gender Have Affected Presidential Selection and Senate Confirmation Hearings. Their co authors, Christina L. Boyd and Carson A. Pennington, were unable to join us, but a sincere thank you to both of them for writing a piece that I found truly engaging. So thank you all for making the time in several time zones for the podcast. Um, today is my hundredth podcast, so I'm uh, really thrilled to be with colleagues whom I worked with on this uh, Polity Symposium, and especially as the Supreme Court is making their decisions, it's particularly thrilling to be able to have a live conversation with um, four people whose scholarship I truly admire. Christine and Zach, let's start with the Federalist Society. Um, After the last few years, the conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court has made many changes to American law, including those that have received a lot of media attention, such as voting rights, concealed carry, and abortion. Um, Your work demonstrates that the ideological composition of the court is the result of decades of careful training of American jurists by the Federalist Society um, and your research has two parts. You, you interrogate the extent of the power of the Federalist Society, but you also make suggestions to progressives and people who want the court to sort of stay in the middle about how to strategically use your data. So let's start with the Federalist Society briefly. What is the Federalist Society? And, and what do you mean by going nuclear in the context of the judicial confirmation process?
2: I guess I'll go ahead and start. Um, so the Federalist Society is a really important interest group in the conservative legal movement, definitely the most prominently covered today, and their emphasis is really on having a network of affiliates who understand constitutional interpretation via originalism or textualism, it goes by different names, but really strict adherence to the text of the Constitution and, um... the federalist papers and really the expectation of society uh during the founding era what the framers of the constitution were wrestling with which uh no doubt is a really important uh way to think about constitutional interpretation but susan as you point out in your opener to the symposium it has become a political strategy right the federalist society has become really uh integrated into the political party that is the Republican Party of today and for the past couple decades. And it's a really important topic that we were excited to sort of dig into a little bit more.
1: So, Christine, what does this membership in the Federalist Society in law school or beyond law school, like why why does it matter for what you do in the future on the bench? I mean, Zach is underlining that you're, you're encouraged to think about the text and the history and tradition behind, beyond that text. And again, footnote, I don't actually think that is what they're teaching. And I don't think they actually are strict textualists. I think they're the opposite of that. So that's my editorial opinion. But but based on what they're they're trying to do, how is it that they have such an effect
3: going forward once people are out of law school? OK, so the Federalist Society at its core is a networking organization, and it is a group of like-minded individuals or people who are interested in these types of ideas to come together. And what they do in law schools is actually their trick is that they always have the best food. And so that's how they draw people in because all the other organizations have pizza and, you know, Betterless Society will have something a little um, more substantial. And there's nothing more attractive as a law student than free food. And so people get pulled into these meetings and they're told, that this is the organization to be a part of if you want a federal clerkship or if you want to be um, a member of this legal elite when you graduate. And so that's really attractive to a lot of people. And we think that is a big piece of this is getting them in the door. And we can tell that there's a difference between people who join in law school versus people who join later in their career um, as to how well they hold to these ideals of the framers or originalism or what is perceived to be the ideas of the framers. Um, The thing that is really interesting about the trajectory of your career is we're seeing that there is a shift, that there is a signal being sent when you are nominated to a federal position that you are the right type of conservative if you are affiliated with this Federalist Society organization. And we see that all the way down even to the district court level, which is what our our first piece talks about. So, Zach, tell
1: me a little bit about these findings. Like what. So what did you find? And this is a very uh, the going nuclear is, you know, a very data driven piece. You've you've collected an enormous amount of uh, data to even make any of these observations. And so I'll and we will have a link to your article both of them in uh, the show notes. But just give us a general idea, like how does this play out? And and then we'll talk about, well, what do we do with those findings?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, we took an approach to identifying Federalist Society members that is potentially controversial. We looked at their website, identified people who had agreed to speak or moderate at events uh, for the Federalist Society nationwide. And use that as our sort of first cut for who these affiliates are. And really to sort of echo what Christine was saying, we use affiliates explicitly, right? They're not members because there is so much diversity in thought, right? These are legal scholars and lawyers, people who professionally consider the law. So that's really important. And as a sort of second cut at this, we reviewed people who potentially could be Uh, the sort of liberal counterweight, and cut them out to create a really diverse data set, technically going back all the way to their founding, but we've only cleaned the data up to about 1993, and that's what we use in our article. I would say the thing that struck me most from our findings from our first article was how we could see over time the Federalist Society becoming explicitly political and observed as such. And by that, I mean Bill Clinton nominates a Federalist Society member to the court. George uh, W. Bush obviously does, but not at the rates that Trump does. And even Obama, in almost every single Congress that he's president, he's nominating Federalist Society members to the bench. Is Joe Biden doing that? Oh, you don't have the data yet, but I'm going to say probably not. Right. It's really changed rapidly. And at least we argue in the article, it's not possible without institutional reform that happened in the Senate that Democrats actually started under President Obama. So it, it was a really fun article to write. I think it's a good first cut and we still have a lot left to learn.
1: Christine, do you want to add anything to that before we talk about this um, current supermajority and what it is that you and Zach think people need to, who, to strateg- who strategically want to use the courts need to think about? Do you want to add to this before we go there?
3: Yes. So we also looked at uh, Senate Judiciary Committee questionnaires. So we went really deep into the backgrounds of these individuals. So this is a measure that is validated both by the Federalist Society website and by the, the questionnaires that are officially part of the record. Um, the other thing we did, it was easy to uh, filter out liberal counterweights because they're labeled as such on the event listing. And so that was not something we were super worried about. We really want to emphasize that we focus not on the Supreme Court's counter or supermajority because that is um, so well documented, but we focus on lower courts because as the Supreme Court solidifies its supermajority and it, we begin to understand that behavior, we think. L- lawyers are going to not uh, apply for certiorari. They're not going to ask for the Supreme Court to hear their cases. They're going to focus their efforts on lower courts because that's where they can win a case.
1: Okay. And that's great. And this is great timing because in just in the last couple of days, we see that um, the Senate Judiciary Committee has pushed through some um, nominations from President Biden, which are are just, are, are, will populate the federal bench. And so they're not getting the kind of attention that there would be if this was a Supreme Court appointment. So, okay, so we have this supermajority at the Supreme Court level. We have some people who would like to see a status quo reading of the Constitution, and we have people who would like to see a more progressive reading of the Constitution. So what does your research indicate should be their strategy. And, and I want to say about your polity piece that what is sort of fascinating about it is its uh, willingness to openly say, we are political scientists, we have looked at data, but we also have a recommendation that is political that comes from our own politics and how you separate that. So for those people who've ever thought about doing that, I want to recommend Zach and Christine's piece as a, a model for how You know how you how you do this and how you build complementary pieces. But okay, so what should people do with this um, data? And then I also want to know if anybody has looked at this data and approached you, or you know whether there's been any sort of engagement.
3: So one of the most interesting findings to me when we started working on this polity piece was that there needs to be a shift in the conventional wisdom of which circuits are conservative and which circuits are more um, open to progressive. cases. So the conventional wisdom when I was in law school and up until very recently was that the Ninth Circuit is the most progressive circuit. That's where you should take your cases. Um, but they're always going to get knocked down at the Supreme Court level.
1: And, and, so, and Christine, I'm just going to interrupt you for a second. Just back up and give me the one sentence on the circuits, because we have lots of people listening from all over the world and country who don't study the Supreme Court and just need a brief reminder.
3: Yes. So there's three levels of the federal judiciary. There's the district court level, which there are several in most states. Then there's the intermediate level, which is the appeals uh, circuit was what they're called. And there's 12 circuits in the United States and they're divided by region. But the regional divides are a little bit um, unexpected. So you have my home circuit, which is the 10th circuit. And so that's Oklahoma, Kansas, Utah. And um, New Mexico, which you wouldn't really regionalize together, so that's interesting. And then you have the Ninth Circuit, which is the West Coast, and they are—they all have reputations for who is conservative, who is more uh, liberal. And the Supreme Court takes into consideration those reputations when they're deciding which cases they're going to take and hear at that level of the federal judiciary. So, a so circuit has its reputation.
1: Okay, great. But I derailed your point because I just wanted to make sure everybody okay. knew. So you're saying that um, lawyers have known this. They they know strategically to look, but you think your data should affect how they think about these different um, strategies. So, so tell us a little bit more about that.
3: Yes. So interest groups and lawyers, they spend a lot of money on which cases they're going to bring. And this is work that builds off of what Paul and Rory have done previously. There's a lot of money being spent on these cases. And a lot of people are donating to groups like the ACLU or Southern Poverty Law Center or the Heritage Foundation because they are bringing lawsuits. It's incredibly expensive. These lawyers can charge anywhere from 400 to $1,500 per hour on these cases. And so if you're gonna spend this type of money, to bring a case you want to bring that case and look for a, a vehicle that's going to be in a circuit in which you can win so that money is not wasted and that you can continue to raise money for your litigation efforts and so what people tend to do is focus on the blockbuster cases so you know texas passes a really controversial abortion uh, ban and so we're going to raise money and fight this in texas The problem is texas is in the fifth circuit which is the most conservative circuit and that always has been but there are circuits that are shifting so i really wanted to emphasize in this piece that the tenth circuit might be where they should go because oklahoma is going to have a very similar law to texas because texas can't do anything that we don't also have to do we have to follow what texas does
1: And federalism, Christine, that's the laboratories and the
3: creative forces of the states. Absolutely. Uh, The policy diffusion is quick here. So if you want to challenge the Texas law, you can do that, but challenge it in Oklahoma where you're at the 10th circuit. And the difference, we have this in our piece, is that in the Fifth Circuit, over 50% of the judges on that bench Nine of them are Federalist Society affiliates. And in the Tenth Circuit, only two are. And that should be surprising because people think the Tenth Circuit is very, very conservative. But it is, more Walter, only two are Federalist Society affiliates. And so you have a better chance of getting a panel that will agree with you because at the circuit level, they don't all hear the case. It's randomly assigned into a three-judge panel. And so you have a better shot at something like the Tenth Circuit, you also have a better shot in the fourth circuit than you do in the 11th circuit. And those are regionally very close together. So if you don't like something Georgia is doing, challenge it in South Carolina when the policy diffuses into South Carolina. Zach, you want to add anything to to
1: that before we move on to um, Lori and Paul's research?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say, as always, Christine has hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, we take it one step further in the polity article and even calculate right, the probabilities that um, the Fedsoc would be a majority on a given panel. Or even the probability that uh, a Fedsoc affiliate would be a senior level replacement when the politics go in um, into that sort of way. So we're going to say that.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think that's actually really effective. And actually it it and it highlights what I think is very original and interesting and gutsy or two junior people, in the polity piece. And I really, no, I appreciate that. Uh, we're not going to make much of a contribution to contemporary politics unless we get gutsy before tenure. So thank you both. And we're going to come back to some of these insights in our discussion of this current term. Um Laurie and Paul, let, let's turn to your work on identity. Uh, when when President Biden announced his nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to serve as an associate justice on Supreme Court, you know he said, and I'm going to read the quote, From your article, uh, quote from Biden, from your article, quote, for too long, our government, our courts haven't looked like America. And I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the full talents and greatness of our nation with a nominee of extraordinary qualifications and that we inspire all young people to believe that they can one day serve their country at the highest level. And, and you note that Jackson's nomination was first greeted with enthusiasm, but the confirmation process was, as you say, quote, tainted with racial and gendered attacks. So how should we understand Justice Jackson's experiment in uh, uh, appointment in the in the wider context? But I, I guess let's start with how you saw her confirmation process as tainted um, and then maybe move to the wider context. Um I don't know which one of you would like to start, Lori.
4: Yeah, well, you know, we, we see this consistently with um, virtually all of the Supreme Court firsts, the first um, individuals to bring a particular type of demographic diversity to the bench, to the Supreme Court. and And what we see is exactly what we saw in Justice Jackson's confirmation hearing, in that it's this combination of celebration and skepticism. So, so there is a celebratory aspect to when uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the Supreme Court, um, it, it is, is confirmed. And there is a celebratory aspect when Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was not the first Jewish nominee, um, but he was a Jewish nominee during a period in our history when that was particularly um, acutely controversial, and he was also an immigrant. Um, who who came to the United States not speaking English. Um, So there's this combination of celebration, this only in America story um, that elevates these personal narratives about identity, but then it's undergirded with with this um, parallel um, skepticism of a a type of discomfort or distrust, which is often embedded in racial stereotypes or gender stereotypes, that that um, enable or or emerge for the senators the sense that this person is a little bit different a little bit other and maybe not as trustworthy and and what our work has um, has found is that we can actually track that in a fairly predictable and measurable way at the confirmation hearings themselves
1: well tell me more about about how you measure that and how that actually plays out
0: have me too susan um so what we've been looking at are the Supreme Court confirmation hearings that, and the, the open hearings start in 1939. And so we were lucky enough to secure the transcripts of every hearing in American history. Um, and so we thought deeply about how these types of racial and gender biases might pop up at the hearings. Um, and so we look at a variety of metrics to try to detect this bias. And we find, for example, that female nominees and nominees of color, they undergo a different hearing environment in ways that that are both pretty obvious and more subtle. So, for example, they're interrupted more than white male senators. They tend to be questioned more about their competence to serve on the Supreme Court. They get more questions about their stereotype strengths. And so these are things like abortion rights for for women and crime um, for people of color. And we also find when we dive more closely into the language that senators use, that senators use less positive language towards non-white male nominees. And they also use language that differentiates um, female nominees and nominees of color from what they view as the more traditional white male nominee.
4: An example of this um, from uh, Amy uh, Coney Barrett's hearing, which I think is really interesting, um, one and it also shows that this is not, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit. It's not. Um, it's not purely a phenomena of uh, partisanship, right? It it it, it supersedes that. Um, and a, a Republican senator asked um, uh, Judge Barrett, "Who does the laundry in her house?" You know, and the, the, he, uh, the senator obviously thought he was and was he was speaking in jest. He thought it was a lighthearted comment. Um, and that's all true. He was certainly not intending to evidence any sort of gender-based bias toward her. But that question would not have been asked um, of a male nominee. It just doesn't occur to the senator to think of a male nominee in that context. So we see this type of difference um, where where there it, there is a, a different type of hearing, a different kind of mind frame that appears to be um, going on when these nominees are are the ones sitting in the hot chair. Uh, no, thank you both. W- why did this start in 1939? So they, they appoint a lot of justices without any sort of
1: confirmation hearing. It just the president names and the Senate confirms. What, why did they start this process in thirty nine?
4: Yeah, so it, it's really an interesting story. This was the confirmation hearing in 1939 of Felix Fran- Frankfurter, the the Jewish immigrant nominee. Um, and he was the first nominee I, who, who testified personally. And I think that came about really for two reasons, both of which are, are, are linked to these, these, these um, identity dynamics. Um, the first reason actually was about Hugo Black, which was the nominee before Justice Frankfurter. Hugo Black was, at the time of his nomination, a sitting senator um, from Alabama, and it came out after he had been confirmed by his, his, his colleagues in the Senate that he had at one point as a young politician in Alabama accepted and apparently never um, revoked or rescinded a lifelong membership in the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and when that was revealed after the confirmation was already complete, there weren't public hearings of any sort at that time, um, it, it, it was um, very controversial. And the American Bar Association, the Senate, various advocacy groups, um, immediately kind of uh, insisted on a change in process. So that type of, of thing could not go by without public comment again. So the, the Senate judiciary committed after the black confirmation debacle um, that in the future it would hold hearings. Um, so, so they did and they held hearings. But it wasn't clear at that point whether the nominee themselves was actually going to testify at the hearings. And what happened at the black, or I'm sorry, at the Felix Frankfurter confirmation hearings, um, when they were holding these public hearings to fulfill the promise that they had made, um, they had a bunch of public witnesses come in, and these public witnesses were were frankly just horrible. <laughs> they, there were all sorts of overt. There was nothing subtle about this in this era. Um, accusations and uh, uh, concerns and hostility um, about the Frankfurter nomination, specifically on the grounds that he was Jewish, um, that he was insufficiently American, that he would be a traitor to the nation, that he could not be trusted, that people were going to think that it was okay for more um, people like him to come to America and expect to succeed. It was very unsettled. It was a very racist um, a- um, anti-Semitic attack. Um, So, so Felix or or, so um, President Roosevelt, who had nominated Frankfurter, um, his people told uh, uh, at the time Professor Frankfurter that he had to go into the hearing room and testify. Uh, he, He had to go in and defend himself in person because this constant attack was really taking a toll. Wow. It's amazing. And it's, and it's interesting that
1: some of this is still happening. It's just happening in different language that we need to be more aware of, because as you say, with Amy Coney Barrett, it's a, it's, it's more subtle as to why issues of motherhood, why issues of uh, uh, spousely duties are somehow uh, relevant in her case. Um, I thought about your research a lot uh, during the oral arguments for the Voting Rights Act um, this year and uh, because of uh, Justice Jackson's extensive participation as a first-term justice and her introduction of some arguments that haven't been made as explicitly in the Supreme Court. So I guess I'll use that as a segue to ask you, what effect do you think uh, diversity on the court has. And, you know, are there examples in with Justice Jackson or Justice Barrett or others uh, on the court um, where you see a connection between the change in substance?
0: Yeah, there's no question that diversity matters because de- decisions by the Supreme Court don't just affect white men. They affect all of society. And women and people of color bring a unique perspective to bear, as we saw with Justice Jackson's questioning during the Voting Rights Act cases. Another really good example of this is a sort of obscure case called Safford United School District versus Redding, where the, the case is basically about the, a strip search of a 14 year old uh, girl you know, who's in like junior high. Um, And and the the court determined that the the school official had had overreached and violated her her uh, Fourth Amendment rights and that it was an unreasonable search and seizure. But what's actually more important about the case is how Justice Ginsburg viewed the case and and how she handled the oral arguments versus her male colleagues on the Democratic side. So Justice Breyer, for example, looked at the case and thought. I don't get it. I don't get why it's a big deal to strip search a 14-year-old girl. He, he said when he was in junior high, they used to have to change before gym class. And so this is just no big deal. And it was Justice Ginsburg who came out during oral arguments, but then also made the very unusual move to talk to USA Today about it to basically stress that she had a very different perspective about how intrusive it is for a 14-year-old young woman going through puberty to be strip-searched by school officials. And that's just one of many examples that demonstrate that diverse perspectives, whether they come from women, people of color, people just from a different background, really matter, and they can fundamentally shape the course of American law.
4: Yeah, Lori, please. It's, it's, to, it's also really interesting. One of the really, uh, I think, great things about what we see on the court right now is we have um, diversity within identity groups, right? So, so Justice uh, Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor and uh, probably Katanji Brown Jackson all have very different perspectives. They have different internal stories about the role that race has played in their own lives. Um, and we see with um, Amy Coney Barrett versus Alana Kagan, you know, both women and but yet have kind of different takes on, on, on what some of these, uh, what the relevance of their various experiences are. And that's really good. I mean, it is really excellent for the court, for the discourse, um, for, for the public kind of understanding of these issues. Uh, and back to Zach and Christine's point for just a moment, there was a striking moment at Ketanji uh, Braun Jackson's hearing when Senator Cruz asked her if he was an originalist, if she was an originalist. And you could kind of see that Senator Cruz expected her to say no, and she said yes. Um, and that that is evidence of, again, a form of, of, of diversity of thinking, even within that label of judicial philosophy. There's a lot of ways to approach originalism. Most um, judges um, believe that some thinking about um, the the expectations of the founding generation matter when we are interpreting the Constitution. There's lots of disagreement about how to do that, and having these different judges talk about these things in 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 more um, uh overt and varied ways is, I think, really good for the court and for the country.
1: And just to clarify for listeners, what Justice Jackson did was go back and look at the original understanding of the 14th Amendment in the congressional uh, record and demonstrated that it was in no way race neutral, that in fact, the senators themselves are saying over and over again, we're worried, for example, that the newly freed men will be crushed. And they use very explicit language. And she cited that language. And so. One of the issues with originalism, and Lori, I do remember that moment when she said yes, and I thought, I don't know if I think that's that good or that bad, but is to say, we can look in very different places for historical material. And often uh, looking through history can be a very selective process. And part of what Justice Jackson is contributing is a a much more uh, broad and nuanced understanding of what is the history, you know, with uh, scare quotes. Uh, Paul, I also wanted to say that um, as uh, a- another example that I think is helpful here in terms of the white men on the court is the extent to which their identity is constantly introduced and shows the limitations of their or difference in their experience. So, for example, in the in the Bruin case, when they're talking about concealed carry, uh, I think it's Justice Roberts said something about. Well, like, so you're walking on a trail at night. Like, what's the big deal? And I'm thinking, what's the big deal? Like, that's where many, many women feel very, very threatened. And Justice Alito talked about the subway and feeling safer with a gun. Well, that's something that only perhaps a white person would say, because in the Bernie Getz case, the person with the gun shot the teenagers who are African-American and they're left paralyzed so this idea of who is safe and and what does what does uh what does safety even mean is very much defined by their own identity and that's not something that gets questioned during these confirmation hearings you know do you have enough information about domestic violence do you understand how rape works you know have have you ever ridden the subway so so i, I think it's your piece is really really good at sort of drawing our attention to the fact that identity has always been part of this process because you could only be a Supreme Court justice if you had a particular identity, male, white, Christian, and Christian narrowly defined only certain denominations of Christianity and it being quite a big deal, for example, to appoint a Catholic justice to to the Supreme Court. That's something we can take for granted now because the court is predominantly Catholic, which is a kind of a, a major shift. Okay, I want to... Thank you for these incredible articles. There'll be links to them in the show notes. But I, I also want to ask you, we're in the middle of these cases coming down. And I guess I want to ask each of you, uh, Christine, I'll start with you. Like, so what are you thinking about this term? What are the things that are top of mind and most interesting to you uh, that you think we should be like
3: looking hard at? Yes. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so I'll start uh, at a micro level. Something I found really interesting is that... When we think about the identity and the intellectual identity of the justices, especially when we're talking about diversity amongst the conservative block of the court, we're starting to see some decisions come out that may surprise um, academics and the broader public. And the first one that may have been a surprise is the uh, Brackenby-Holland case that just came out, where you see Amy Coney Barrett, author an opinion that upholds. ICWA, which was, according to many experts, very a very, very high risk case for uh, Native American tribes. And we also see in that opinion, uh, Neil Gorsuch write an opinion that is very much in favor of tribal sovereignty and upholding Native American relations with the federal government. And that might be surprising if you think on a one-dimensional level of what's Republican and what's a Democratic opinion, what's a conservative opinion, what's a liberal opinion. And I think something that our piece really speaks to is that when we elevate justices from different circuits that are not the traditional D.C. Circuit intellectual history, we may see more diversity in the intellectual execution of opinions. And so Neil Gorsuch's home home circuit is the Tenth Circuit, and they deal with a lot of the tribal cases because of where we are located. And so you can see that he takes those opinions very, very seriously in a way that someone who is intellectually very similar, John Roberts or Brett Kavanaugh, do not tend to take those cases as seriously. So I think that that's something to watch is how they're going to see the intellectual diversity play out amongst the, the supermajority. And I think it'll be really interesting.
1: Now that's a great point. Um, uh, ICWA, for those who are not insiders, is the um, Indian Child Welfare Act, and uh, and I think Gorsuch has been in his entire you know time in the court very focused and is predictably favoring tribal sovereignty, which, as you say, is not something that if you just looked at his identity, but if you look at where he pre- he was a judge, it's really really. Um, it, it clarifies it. Although some people could have sat on that same circuit and not walked away with what he did, but it's a, it's a great, great example. Um, Lori, what are you thinking about this uh, term? What has been striking you as, as you've been listening to these cases come down?
4: Yeah, well, I think Christine's point about the diversity that's emerging within the um, conservative bloc is very interesting. It reminds me of the uh, of FDR's judges, President Roosevelt's judges, and you you see this happening um, as uh, as as the um, priorities of a given political party shift. So President Roosevelt nominated just a huge number of justices, um, and and the driving um, thing he cared about was that they would uphold uh, the New Deal legislation, uphold the use of federal power to to regulate the national economy. And they all did that very consistently. But as the 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 um, priorities of the Democratic Party changed over time, uh, what you saw was those judges splintered. They splintered on race, most notably. So so, I think we are seeing something emerging on the among the Republican nominated justices right now as well we we see a block of justices who all share um, that they were nominated by Republican presidents but what that means um, is going to perhaps diverge in interesting and unexpected ways so I I thank Christine for making that point the case I'm waiting on um, uh, as of this recording it has not been, um, uh, released, is Moore v. Harper, the independent state legislature uh, case, which um, has the potential to really pretty dramatically change uh, the ability of state constitutions to restrict the actions of state legislatures when um, regulating elections. Um Explain in just you know a sentence or two because
1: I, I I think for court watchers just you say those words and and people's hackles are are up because this was a very very radical idea and if this podcast was happening five years ago and you suggested this everybody would just say, Laurie you're nuts. Why, why would like nobody believes that.
4: Yeah. So so the um. The article one of the Constitution um, and article two of the Constitution in combination, they give to state legislatures and they use the, the, the text of the Constitution uses that term, that it is the state legislature of every state that has the um, uh, power, at least the, as an initial matter, unless Congress chooses to override it in certain circumstances, to make the basic nuts and bolts rules about how elections work. Um, and and the contest um, that has emerged. We heard a lot about this in the 2020, uh, in the aftermath of the 2020 election. It played a little role way back in Bush v. Gore. But the idea is whether the state legislature um, means a state legislature unbound even by state constitutional rules. So the basic default position in, in U.S. kind of constitutional thinking is that the um, Um, States are the final deciders of what state law means. As long as it doesn't violate the Constitution, they get the last words. And state legislatures have to make laws consistent with their own Constitution as well as with the federal Constitution. So the argument is that the federal Constitution, by um, specifically noting that the state legislature gets to make these rules, the argument is that that means the state legislature gets to do so completely independently of any other restrictions imposed by even the state constitution. The justices didn't seem warm to uh, the, the, they seemed quite hostile to, to some of the more extreme versions of that argument. My concern with the case is that it's not gonna write. They're looking for some sort of middle ground test to kind of chop off state court um, interpretations that in their view go too far and get state law wrong. Um, my fear is that's going to be really, really hard to write, and they're going to end up having to go to to an extreme to try to find a bright line test to impose. Okay, it's a great
1: t- it's a it's a great case to be watching. Um, Zach, what's
4: uh, what what
1: are what are what are you thinking about as you're hearing the news come down this term?
2: Yeah, I I appreciate you putting it that way. I don't know that I would call myself a court watcher. I'm probably the most foreign to judicial politics on the podcast. But I will tell you something that's been striking to me was Chief Justice Roberts refusing to testify before Congress. I mean, we want to talk about the traditional roles of the institutions in the Constitution. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And it, it made me think about other work that I've done. Um, I've actually written an article in Political Research Quarterly that looks at the privately sponsored travel that's disclosed by members of Congress. Most students in my classes don't even know that that's happening, and it makes me think further about the court's philosophy on what minimizes corruption, the idea that disclosure saves us all, the idea that knowing some super PAC is spending lots of money but not knowing who is giving the money is enough. It's a very flawed logic in my mind, and by declining to talk to Congress, to me that was throwing the gauntlet down. Congress, are you going to reign in the Supreme Court when public confidence is plummeting? Are you going to do your constitutional job? Um, It's a disappointing time for me as someone who studies Congress to watch the institution I studied most closely continue to not do their job and, you know, bicker among themselves. Um, Yeah, I'm hoping that that changes. I'm hoping that the justices uh, take some responsibility for being the public servants that they are, that's something that's concerning to me.
1: Oh, I'm really glad you, you brought that up. First of all, we're recording days after um, uh, the allegations against uh, Justice Alito were made that you know he took very expensive flights and stayed in um, very expensive lodgings and ate meals, et cetera, on uh, as a guest, quote-unquote, of somebody who is connected to Supreme Court cases and didn't recuse himself. And this has raised these issues of, well, what ethics rules uh, should apply to the Supreme Court and why are they so self-enforcing? Um, and, and, and is it the case that Congress uh, or the public or others would, would put pressure or they put pressure on themselves as an institution? Uh, a lot of people tend to talk about Justice Roberts as a moderate. He's not a moderate, but he is an institutionalist in some ways and he does care about procedure in some ways. But I think Zach, you underline that this is not a monolith, and that there are ways in which uh, he is actually quite willing to flaunt what it is are the traditional powers of, um, of of the Congress. Yeah, please.
2: Yeah, and just to sort of echo Laurie and Christine made this point, right? There, there is a lot of diversity of thought, but sometimes they're lockstep. And this ethics issue is a weird one for them to pick. Why is the court in lockstep against ethics? That's how I view it, anyways.
1: You anticipated my last question, which is where I think we're going to leave it today, which is that you are four political scientists. Some of you are focused on the court in these you know, very, very careful ways. Others of you are bringing an expertise about other major institutions to your work on the Supreme Court. Uh, how can political scientists, what should political scientists be doing that they're not doing? I want to give a shout out to the editors at Polity. They uh, agreed that Uh, We should have an immediate symposium uh, on the Supreme Court because things looked different or not. And uh, and I think you'll see in the symposium that some people say, well, very little has actually changed about the Supreme Court. Uh, And I I also want to say that that's a a symposium that is really easy to assign to students because the pieces are so short. They're 1,500 words. And so you're getting the result of all of this research, but in a very, very um, small easily readable package. But so thank you to the editors of Polity for putting it in Polity quickly so we can have discussion. But what else should political science be be doing or are we doing a good job? I don't know who wants to start this one.
0: Yeah, Paul, please. I think we should be doing this. Um, so public engagement is the key here. So with a small number of exceptions, including the Polity Symposium, which was fantastic, Most of our research gets read by other academics and other academics. And so what we have to be able to do, especially for our research, which is policy, policy oriented, which which all of this work is, is take that next step and reach out, whether it be through a podcast. Um, It could be writing an op ed or writing an explainer. Um, It could be consulting with interest groups or members of the Senate. There's a lot of ways. And. I know that when I was going through graduate school, this was generally found upon. Um, You know, we would often write something, the last paragraph maybe in an article, this, all right, here's why our research is policy relevant, but it was all kind of, you know, it it wasn't viewed as a, a highly significant part of that article. Now, I encourage my graduate students to go the exact opposite way and to think about why the research that they're doing is policy relevant, and to build into that research the policy implications of it and to take that next step and talk to the media and write an op-ed and go on a podcast and share the important insights that we can offer to the public and to to political officials.
4: Thanks, Paul. Lori? Yeah, so I'm actually not a political scientist. Oh, I'm I'm so sorry. No. I, I Thank you. <laughs> that, 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 that's what Paul's here for. Um, so Sam, but I have two examples um, that I think as, as someone who works adjacent to that field are just excellent examples of how to tap the expertise of your colleagues. Um, one is in the vo- recent Voting Rights Act case, there was an incredibly influential um, brief submitted by a group of political scientists led by Nick Stephanopoulos. Um, one of the concerns about section two of the Voting Rights Act, not to get too far in the weeds, is that it pushes jurisdictions toward um, a type of pro- a white right to proportional representation for black Americans as long as they're kind of geographically clustered. Um, and and that brief by political scientists said that's not really true. Um, it that this law, as it currently exists, is not having that effect. Um, and Justice Roberts, I think, was very reassured by that because this idea that, uh, that, that the statue would kind of require proportionate representation for black Americans was very offensive to some of the justices. Um, the political science briefing showed that that's simply not what's happening. Um, the second example, down here at the University of Georgia, we, the, the, the university recently hosted a conference that brought together... Um, election administrators, the people who run the nuts and bolts of elections with political scientists. Um, And the purpose of this was to um, help inform the political scientists about what type of work would really um, be useful and meaningful to the people who are down in the trenches um, dealing with these issues um, on on a day-to-day basis. And I think things like that are just excellent. Wow, that is fabulous! I would love to have been
1: a fly on the wall um, of that of that con- uh, uh, of that conference. And I, I want to say one thing, uh, Lori, about what you said. Uh, I noticed in uh, Amy Coney Barrett's um, opinion. Oh gosh, which one was it? it? It had to do with the sloppiness of what the lawyers had put forward. This idea that you're expecting us uh, to overturn something very big and you haven't done the work. And and that was also the sense in the Voting Rights Act and what Justice uh, Roberts said. And uh, Dahlia Lithwicks had a great line in which she said that what really Justice Roberts wanted was for young Justice Roberts to bring the case to the court. In other words, somebody who would have done the work because Alabama didn't do the work. It was very sloppy lawyering and they didn't have the facts. So it is interesting that even in this world in which we are increasingly seeing people dismiss facts, there are small moments in which somebody like Roberts, who wants already to rule in a particular way, will use this friend of the court brief to shore up what he wants to do. I don't know that it changes what he wants to do, but it certainly supports him in um, in doing it. Zach, you've been trying to get in. Oh, no. Well, well, what do you think? Well, Zach, you're a con- 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 Congress scholar. I mean, what... What do you what do you think? What do you think political scientists should be doing right now? Again, not for the court. I think I think you said it before, and that's (laughs) they should be thinking more about what Congress is not doing.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, To sort of echo what Paul was saying, something that I feel strongly about and that I do in my classes, in my Congress class in particular, is I take my students to our county government meeting where they see what a small locally elected legislature is like. Seeing people who know each other, work beside each other with regularity, different levels of professionalization, but have to do the work of governing. Someone has to pay to salt the roads. Someone has to pay to pave the roads, right? And that's the work that they do. Seeing a functioning legislature, I think, is really eye-opening for them. And uh, public engagement writ large is important, but that's just an example for my.
1: Great. And Christy, I'm going to have you close the podcast. But before I do, Paul and Zach, I, I guess I want to underline something that Paul said about public engagement. I'm new to doing lots of work with reporters. It's, all you know, somebody like Lori is an old hat at this. and But for me, being on NPR and doing these kinds of things is newer. And one thing that I've noticed in my colleagues who say, oh, I," not my political science colleagues, wider colleagues who say, The problem is, you know, I I spend all this time with a reporter and they only use one sentence of what I wrote. And then they use everything I said, though, in the body of the piece. And I, I said to this friend of mine, who's a very, very important scientist who does really great work. And I said, oh, that's my goal. Like my goal is to change their language from gun control to gun safety. If I can get them To use my version of the voting rights history and they put it in their words, that's a victory. And so I think there's that too that the problem is that political scientists have to switch between their ego and what it means to be in print and have like a lot of hits uh, and be recognized versus having an impact on policy. And those are often two different things. And sometimes spending 30 minutes with a reporter and building that relationship and helping them understand something. You know, I'm explaining uh, 18th century gun rules, and it's not gonna all make it into the piece, but it may change how they think. And I think that's what we have to, that's one of the things we have to, um, to work on. Okay, Christine, I'm gonna have you end us off with uh, what 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 should political scientists be doing?
3: Yeah. So I love this question. This is one of my favorite things to talk about. And public engagement is the number one thing we should be doing. But I think the second thing, and it's a piece of public engagement, is doing more work with our students, whether they be undergraduate students or law students, and bringing them into the research process as early as possible. So what we did, Zach and I, for this piece in the Law and Public Policy Lab, was we got undergraduate to comb through every Federalist Society affiliate's history, every, anything they could find. We sent them a LinkedIn, uh, lobbying disclosure reports. I wanted to know who they clerked for, where they went to law school, what clubs they were in, who, are, who is their network. And that's something we're building out now. And it's impossible to do that without undergraduate research assistants. So it's great for us and for our careers, but the best thing about it is that it increases levels of data literacy, especially among political science students and law students. And it helps them understand what do we mean when we say, this is the research that I do. And it makes them a better consumer of that research. And I think something a lot of political scientists are concerned about with independent legislature theory, with any case that involves a lot of data, is that our lawyers and our judges are not as data literate as we want them to be. And that starts at the undergraduate level. And that's the biggest impact I think we can make is by involving every student. In the classroom or in a research lab like what Zach and I are building. And I think that is the way to make it as accessible as possible so people can actually read our research and understand what we are saying. Thank you so much. That's a great way to end. Dr. Christine C. Bird, Dr.
1: Zachary McGee, Dr. Paul Collins, and Dr. Lori A. Ringhand all have fabulous articles that uh, will be linked in the show notes. And we hope that you. Read and engage with them. Uh, They're for everybody and they're for your students as well. Thank you all for making the time today.
0: Thank you very much, Susan.
4: Thanks.